Welcome to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and in this podcast series, I interview physicians, medical innovators, and entrepreneurs making an impact on healthcare. This podcast is produced by DaVinci Academy, a multimedia medical education company that provides podcasts, video courses, and digital textbooks. You can see more on our website, www.dbiacademy.com and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash DaVinci Academy Med. Hey everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Nisha Mehta this week, uh, who is a radiologist, a writer, a speaker, and the founder of Physician Side Gigs, which is a very popular uh, physician community for finding side gigs and connecting with other physicians with, I believe, over 100,000 members at this point. So uh, Dr. Mehta, appreciate you uh, joining us. It's, re it's really great to um, be on the podcast, and I'm excited to have this conversation. Awesome. Awesome. So I think maybe give the listeners a little bit of a background, like where you did your education, where'd you do your training and then kind of, you know, where you're, you know, you're still uh, practicing part-time. So maybe tell us kind of what your practice looks like at this point. Yeah. I started my undergraduate education at Brown University. Um, I was actually part of an eight-year medical program there, decided I wanted to be closer to home. I grew up in Pennsylvania. And so I, um, I ended up going to university of Pennsylvania for my medical school years. Um, my husband, uh, who I had met while I was at Brown, was actually also in that medical program. Uh, he matched in New York for his residency. Um, so I actually ended up following him to New York, uh, did my radiology residency at NYU, um, has been matched for his plastics fellowship at Duke. Um, and so I followed him to the triangle, uh, took on a faculty position, did my fellowship uh, in musculoskeletal and breast imaging over there and then started as a faculty member at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, from there, we ended up kind of unexpectedly taking jobs in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, and it was really during that time that I had some downtime for the first time. Um, we made a last minute shift to decide to take this job in Charlotte for my husband and that left me with like kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And um, I'd been in academics forever and there was no academic radiology institution in Charlotte. And so I had some options uh, to really think through in terms of what I wanted my career to look like. So during that time, um, I ended up, I actually ended up taking a job at the VA, um, but I had six months of, of a gap in between that time when I was trying to figure out sort of what that next step was and what was right for me. Did I want to go to private practice? Did I want to do telerads? You know, what did I want to do um, during that time? And so I, during that time, started writing, um, which then led to speaking, which then led to me creating these communities. Um, so we now have over 157,000 verified physician members between the two platforms. We are the largest online physician community in the country. Um, and that has just allowed me to really create a platform for myself where I have been able to weigh in on some really cool things. Um, so I've done a lot of advocacy work. I've done a lot of, you know, I, I get to weigh in on a lot of like innovation and health tech and policy and, um, you know, a lot with physician burnout. Uh, that's sort of my number one priority is really trying to figure out how we as physicians can have long-standing career longevity. Um, I think if you look at the numbers of people that are leaving healthcare right now, 
it's not sustainable, right? Um, and from a policy perspective, it's it's sort of a disaster. So a lot of my work really focuses on trying to figure out exactly how we can keep physicians in medicine um, and healthcare workers in general, but really focusing primarily on physicians um, and figuring out how we create career longevity and how we sort of change the culture of medicine to accommodate lifestyles that, that make sense and um, allow us to focus on what we really love the most about the heart of medicine. That's great. No, and I think I applaud you for starting this community, I think, because clearly there was a need for it, um, given by how many members you have, which is just impressive. I'm curious how it has evolved, because that's not easy to do, you know, to create a community with that kind of membership is, is not easy to do at all. And so I'm curious how it's evolved and how you were able to build up that type of membership. I mean, was it just kind of word of mouth or I guess what kind of led to it? Yeah, I mean, I wish that I could say that I was super smart and came up with a plan that just, I mean, honestly, I think I think like most things in life, if you provide value, people will come. And I think in this case, it's not me that's necessarily providing the value, right? The community has just been there for each other, helping each other through all the things, right? They like helped each other get through COVID. They're helping each other get through burnout. They're helping each other get through just all these challenges that are being thrown our way in this current healthcare landscape. And so, you know, our primary means of, of acquisition of people, I mean, I've never advertised the communities. I've never, like, we've never done any of that. Um, it's always just been people adding their friends. And so um, we've just, that's how we grow. And, and every day, you know, we, we actually have about 25,000 people on the wait list waiting to join that have been, you know, added by um, friends or have heard, heard about the communities that, you know, we're just constantly going through trying to verify um, that everybody is in fact a physician because we do want to keep it a safe space um, for people to, to be able to relate to their colleagues. But I think there's really, you know, I mean, in terms of the central themes um, that make this the community really successful, I think there's obviously a dearth of business and finance knowledge out there. And I think physician side gigs really hit that nerve. Um, and then our linked community, physician community, you know, as, as side gigs grew, people were kind of like, okay, no, this is a side gigs community. I know this is business. I know this is finance, but also like there's a lot of doctors here and I need a second opinion on X or my mom fell down the stairs in California and I live in New York. And what if you see her tomorrow? Like, um, and so, you know, we spun off physician community as a way for people to kind of talk about all the things. And so, so that community has really just flourished over the last few years. It's not quite as big as, as physician side gigs is, but um, it's getting there. Uh, and I think that that has just been people wanting to be able to connect with each other. You know, if I have my first lawsuit, I want to hear from my colleagues that it's going to be okay. If I'm struggling with work-life balance, I want to be able to say something to people who get it. If there, you know, there's a lot in terms of physician PR problems that that preclude people from being able to say how they really feel sort of generally to the outside world about, about a lot of topics in medicine. And I think by providing this safe haven where people can kind of come together and support each other. Um, my favorite posts on the group are always those ones where you just see the entire community coming together and be like, you got this, you know, we, we can do this. We can do hard things. Um, it, it, it's just a really empowering and uplifting community. And I think that, that the members have created that for themselves. That's really cool because I think, you know, even though we have our colleagues in the hospital that, you know, there's not always a medium or a place or a meeting or something like that where you can voice those types of either concerns or, or thoughts or questions. And so I think that's, uh, that's amazing. And, and it's great that people have kind of found this, this medium to do that. in. I'm curious, I imagine the networking opportunities are incredible, but I also, are there, do you have 
companies that are looking for physicians to work with them that reach out to you? And are those opportunities posted on there as well? Yeah. So we actually, we have databases for basically everything you can think of, right? So we've got a locums database. We've got a telemedicine database. We've got consulting databases. We've got expert witness databases. We've got speaker databases. We've got brand influencer databases. Um, and so people will sign up for the things that they're interested in. And then when a, um, when a company reaches out and says, Hey, we, we really need help finding, you know, seven endocrinologists in Chicago, two months from now, we say, okay, we could do that, you know, and, and we reach out through our networks and try to make sure that we can find people who are interested. Um, and it's been really nice because it's also been a chance for me to sort of advocate for the physician side of involvement of those things. So if a company comes to me and says, hey, we're going to pay $7 for this telemedicine consult, I'm like, thank you, but no, thank you. Like, we're not putting that out there. You can find your doctors elsewhere. Um, so it's been, it's been a really good way for me to be able to advocate sort of for, for what physician expertise is worth. Um, so for for me, it's kind of mission consistent in that in that way. But yeah, we, we certainly have a lot of different venues for which people can find things. We actually just started a job board to have, try to help physicians connect with jobs that are like not often advertised because of the costs of recruitment. And, you know, our goal is not to be recruiters. It's literally to try to connect physicians to those jobs that, you know, private practice jobs and other things where where it can be prohibitive to try to pay a recruiter $25,000 or $50,000 to find another physician. We're kind of like, well, we've got at least 10 to 15% of the practicing physician population on the group right now. So like, let's try to make some connections. Um, so it's been really fun to connect people. Yeah. That's really awesome. Um, I'm curious what, what types of side gigs have you gotten involved in and which, which I guess maybe from the, cause I imagine you have clinical and then even non-clinical opportunities on here. I guess, which ones have you found? you know, most satisfying or fulfilling? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, the primary side gigs that got me started um, are still some of the side gigs that I love the most, which is writing and speaking. Um, so I do a lot of paid and, and unpaid, honestly, just for things that I, at this point, I have the luxury of kind of being able to say, I want to do this because it's just something that's important to me. Um, and so, uh, you know, I do a lot of writing and speaking, and that's been my bigger side gig. I mean, in terms of other things, I definitely engage in some consulting. I engage in some, we do a lot of real estate. Um, I think that's a really popular side gig amongst physicians. And my family, my family does do a lot of real estate investing. And so that's been an area that I'm really interested in. I don't do expert witness work or telemedicine work or any of that. I just, I don't have the bandwidth um, to be able to do those things. And, you know, of course, running the communities is like another full-time job in and of itself. So, <laughs> um, so those are my things right now. That's awesome. That's very cool. Uh, I'm curious, have you seen, you know, I imagine some physicians, they f initially hear psychic and they say, you know, they think, oh, wow, I can really like boost my income, which I imagine is actually probably more difficult. I mean, I even learned that from doing some of the things outside of medicine, like, you know, building a podcast, for example, is it's been a process. Like I've been doing this for over a year and it's definitely a lot different than when I first started. Um, so I think, you know, what's your thoughts on that? Like, I think for me, the podcast is a great, like creative outlet. And it sounds like that's kind of what some of your pat, your side gigs started as, and obviously they've evolved into other sources of revenue, but I guess I'm curious what your advice is on how to look at that. Yeah. I mean, I think the best thing about being a doctor is that you don't rely on the income from the side gig. Um, and so it's, it's nice to be able to kind of build it 
um, to what you want it to be. So I always tell people to be honest with themselves about how much revenue they're looking to generate and then pick their side gigs accordingly. Right now, I'm a big believer that you can make anything make a lot of money if you if you really you know work at it and you're willing to put the effort in and create the brand and and do all the things so we certainly have people who are doing things that people might say like oh this might not be so lucrative and you're kind of like well really actually because i know somebody who's making a six-figure amount from doing exactly that right um and so it just depends on what what your side hustle is um in terms of what the potential is but you know i mean at this point, like my speaking fees are in the five figure range, right? So if you imagine doing a few of those, um, it, it can add up to a, a good amount of money, right? Um, and so I think that and consulting can certainly add up to a lot of money. Expert witness work can add up to a lot of money, right? A lot of these things are, are things where you're charging 500 plus an hour and, and can really substantially add up to um, significant clinical streams that or income streams that can actually change how you practice clinically. Um, and, and then there's other people who just wanna do things because they're interested, right? And maybe the money comes and maybe it doesn't. I mean, when I started my stuff, the intention was not to monetize it. The, like the monetization became as a necessary sort of, I want to spend more time on this. And in order to do that, I need to cut back clinically. And so therefore I'm going to have to find a way to make this make money if this is what I want to spend my time doing. Right. But it was not, you know, I think, I think passion is really important. A lot of people dive into things because they think they're lucrative and then they're not actually passionate about it and it shows in their work and, and they never get anywhere. Um, and then there's other people who just really love what they do and and people see that and it's infectious and you know there's that energy there that people really latch onto and it can turn into a really big thing um but yeah i mean i think if you're like okay i want to make a lot of money from my side hustle well there are certain things that are more lucrative than others right real estate is going to get you probably more income um same thing with consulting expert witness work um locums things like that are going to be able to be much more lucrative. And then there's going to be other things that are sort of like, you know, if you like to sell art, well, you could be somebody who sells art for, you know, $15,000 a piece, or you could be somebody who's selling art on Etsy for a few dollars in margin. And either one is okay. It's just kind of being honest with yourself about what you, what you're looking to do. Um, but if you think about the rest of the world out there, I mean, you know, like I think we as doctors are very used to thinking that a certain opportunity cost has to be associated with that time because that's been the model that we've worked under where we've, you know, we've always traded time for money. And so that there's there's a certain dollar value that we tend to associate with an hour's worth of our time. And I kind of try to encourage people to think about the fact that the side gigs are adding to your life and in a way that sometimes is not tangible at first, right? Um, you know, at first it may just be that you're networking a lot because you're talking to really cool people or doing really cool things. Um, but that may be the connection that five years from now gets you a really cool opportunity that is lucrative, right? Um, and so I think I would just say, follow kind of where your passion is and, and then the opportunities will usually present themselves if you spend enough time in it. But yeah, I mean, our 130, or 156,000 people, or I guess side gigs has 94,000 people, I think on it right now. Um, and you know, are all 94,000 doing side gigs that, that are particularly lucrative? No, absolutely not. You know, some people just are intrigued by the idea. Some people just want to be there for their colleagues and, and listen to what other people are doing and gain ideas. And then there's other people who are all in and, and really going at it. And, you know, that's the nice thing about a side hustle is it, it can really be on your terms and it doesn't have to be instantaneously an overnight success, right? 
Yeah, definitely. I'm curious your thoughts. You know, I feel like this is a newer wave of physician you're seeing, especially the young, even you know, younger physicians. I feel like every day I find a new, you know, physician on Instagram that's you know got fifty, hundred thousand followers, or you know, someone on LinkedIn with a massive following, and they're doing you know things out. They still practice, but they still do they do other things. I guess why do you think there's this new interest, you know, in doing these types of things outside of medicine? And I think how do you think that's maybe benefited the field? That's a great question. Um, I, I think when people hear that we've got a hundred thousand people on on a group called Physician Side Gigs, everyone's like, I, what, that, I mean, it seems counterintuitive, right? That the doctors would be doing that. Um, but I think the real wave there is there's a few things that are really appealing about a side gig. Number one is it's the opportunity to do something on your own terms. And you know, in medicine, we sort of follow this very pre-prescribed pathway through life where everybody tells us what our next exam is going to be and what the next thing we're going to study is going to be and what the next application process is going to be and what that first job looks like. And you know, you're told these are your hours, this is your call schedule, blah, 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 blah. And so the idea of kind of saying, this is something that I'm going to create and I'm going to do on my terms is really appealing to a lot of people. And as that culture of med, like as, as the healthcare landscape gets more and more challenging, um, I think more and more physicians are kind of looking for some autonomy um, and, and looking to avoid burnout by either adding things to their lives that they find exciting. Um, so maybe they're, you know, pursuing side hustles just because it's fun and not necessarily for the money, but just it gives them an outlet. Um, and then there's other people who are saying, Hey, I actually want to set up a plan B um, for myself or a plan C for myself or a plan D for myself, because I don't like the way that that things are going right now. Um, and so there, I think there is a lot of people looking at, I don't know what the next three decades of medicine is going to look like, and it would be good to not be a one trick pony. So I do think that you see a lot more people kind of saying, well, what is it that I could do that could potentially be a plan B? And some of them end up jumping to it and other ones, you know, it's just a hobby forever. And, and that's okay. I think that like, as long as what you're doing is, is, adding to your life in some way, whether it's happiness or whether it's money or whether it's connections or, you know, whatever it is that, that I, I think it's just doctors are starting to think about their lives outside of just them in the hospital systems. And a large part of that is because of burnout. And a large part of that is because of the pressures of the current system. And people are just saying like, I love what I do, but I also want to be able to walk away from the table if I have to walk away from the table. Yeah. I think that's an interesting an interesting point there. I'm wondering, do you think a big part of burnout is physicians losing control of their, not just their lives inside the hospital, with their, but also outside? I mean, I think, you know, you and I both know, but I mean, we give up a lot to do this. And even, you know, out in practice, you still give up a lot of just your own life. So I'm wondering if you think that's a huge part. And I wonder if that's contributing to the appeal of side gigs, you know, giving you the freedom to do what you want or cut back on your clinical schedule and have, you know, maybe a couple of days a month or even a week where, you know, if you want to step out of the office for in the middle of the day and go get a haircut or go work out or something, you can versus, you know, as you know, as well as I do, you can't do that at the hospital. <laughs> You know, I, I, it's funny because now, like, I always look at my husband and I'm like, how did we get this stuff done when we were both working full time as physicians? Because, you know, now, like, if there's something that needs to get done, I'm like, okay, well, on this day, I'll run to X place and get, you know, I'll drop off that package that needs to be mailed during, you know, hours that where we're working or we could schedule this delivery on this time or all of those things, right? So I think people are saying, I want a little bit of flexibility. I want to be able to have... It is really hard to go through your entire career kind of feeling as though you are 
everything that you do is dictated by somebody else. And I think that, you know, in the past, physicians didn't have that sort of mentality because systems were different. You didn't feel like an employee as much. Um, and now that there are more and more employers who really treat physicians as employees, there's a lot more physicians saying, hey, well, now I want to, if you're going to treat me like an employee, then I'm going to act like an employee, right? Um, and so they're starting to say, like, you know, medicine is a calling for me. I love it. But I also really need to be able to take care of myself and I need to be able to do some things on my terms. And um, for a lot of people, that side hustle has been the way to say, I'm going to take an extra half day a week off and, and just you know, have a little bit of time to myself, or I'm going to end my day an hour early, or I'm going to say no to this call schedule. Um, and, you know, I will no longer take weekday call, or I will no longer take weekend call, or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and the only ability that you have to be able to say no to things is when you have something to fall back on, right? Um, and I think so many physicians are starting to say, well, like, let me start building that kind of plan so that if I need to pull that card, I don't know that I will, you know, maybe I never do, right? Maybe I, I'm happy and I stay here forever and everything is fine and they accommodate everything I ask. But if they say no, and if something is really important to me, do I have the ability to walk away? Um, and especially for current graduates, right, who are coming out of medical school or residency with an average of $300,000 in debt at interest rates of six to 9%, they're really handicapped in the sense that they cannot, um, it's not easy for them to be able to walk away with that kind of debt hanging over their heads. And so I think you're seeing more and more of the younger generation saying, hey, I gotta get ahead of this debt as quickly as possible. Um, and one of the ways that I can do that is to, you know, if I earn an extra thousand or $2,000 a month and I can throw that towards my student loan burden, then you know, I can at least have that off of my head and then I can afford to take some more risks, right? So that lack of autonomy in terms of feeling like, it's it's a very different feeling doing something that you love because you love it, right? And it's a very different feeling doing something that you love, but also somebody's telling you, this is what something you have to do, right? Um, so I always tell people that like, probably the greatest enhancement of my career longevity as a radiologist has been, I'm there because I wanna be there, right? Nobody's telling me I have to be there. I know that if I didn't do radiology anymore, I would be fine. So when I go to work every day now, it's like, I'm excited to go. I'm like looking forward to my days of clinical work. I like go there, I'm happy to see people that I really like, colleagues that I really like, and um, I love the work. And it's just, it's a whole different attitude than what it was when I was, working every day, set hours, and sort of Monday morning was kind of like, okay, how do I make it to Friday afternoon without losing my sanity, right? Like, it's just a very different approach. And so um, your career longevity just gets so enhanced by the fact that you're there because you want to be there as opposed to feeling like you have to be there. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, you know, going to work because you want to be instead of just it being a job, which I think is in the end, in the end, why we all tried to go into the medicine in the first place was we didn't want to work a nine to five office job. We wanted to, you know, do something, you know, meaningful and that was, we were passionate about it. It's funny you bring that up. I, I was recently at SIR conference and there was a IR attending there and I was talking to him and he said, he goes, yeah, I've negotiated my contract where I don't take any call and I work four days a week because he had made so much money in real estate. And it was, and he said, I, he's like, he found a passion for that, that that was something that fulfilled him outside of medicine. But he's like, 
he thought about giving up practice, but he's like, it's too much fun. And he goes, I put too much into it. So it's, I totally get that. <laughs> I think it's great. I mean, like I would be so sad if I had to give up clinical medicine and not because I, not because I would lose revenue, but because I truly love what I do. And, and I think that having the ability to look at it as I'm here because I want to be here has just enhanced that love for the profession so much more. Right. I'm like, I get to do really cool things, right? Like I get to be a part of people's diagnoses. I get to be a part of like, you know, helping change their lives in a very tangible way. And it's funny because when you talk to a lot of physicians today, like I think sometimes we forget that, right? Because we, we feel like we're cogs in the wheel and people are just telling us, this is what you have to do. And this is what you need to order. And this is what you need to document. And this is what you need to bill and blah, 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 blah. And it does, you kind of lose that part of what you do because now there's just so much other stuff that you have to do. And so, um, for, but like at the end of the day, what we do is a privilege, right? Like we get to take care of people and be parts of their lives and change their lives. And there are not very many professions that can, I mean, I think every profession makes a real impact, but there's not a whole lot of professions that can do it in the way that we do it. And they get to be such an intimate part of people's lives and like really help when they need it the most. And, and I think we all went to medicine for that feeling. And, and it's nice when you can go to work thinking, this is what I get to do and I'm really lucky to do it every day. Um, for me, that's, that's really been what the side hustles have really, and for my husband also, you know, it's just kind of like, we're here because we want to be here. We know we could walk away. We know we could whatever, but we really love what we do. Um, and it's better for patient care, right? Because you're there, like you're there for the right reasons. Um, you're not there because you need to turn out two extra procedures because you need to pay the bills. You're there because you want to be there and you like take that extra time with your patients. You have those conversations, you know, like I love, like if I'm, you know, getting to do a procedure and I'm like getting to talk to the, the patient for 10 minutes now, it's not like, okay, I got to get back to my desk so I can read five more reviews. It's I get to do this because I love doing this. Um, and so it, it is a different attitude when, when you're there because you want to be there. And I think a lot of people are looking for that right now. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think, you know, what also is appealing is that you can, you can practice the way you want to practice. You know, you don't, you don't have, like you were saying, you can take a little bit more time with the patients. You can focus maybe on the certain clinical areas you want to, and not just, you know, necessarily doing everything you need to do to keep the lights on, so to speak. <laughs> I mean, I think like my husband still works, you know, full-time as a physician, um, you know, as a partner in his practice, but there are certain parts of his practice that he did not enjoy where he's like, okay, I'm not going to do this procedure anymore. Or I'm not going to, you know, take this particular call anymore. And it, those were the things that were taking away from his feeling that he wanted to do this till he was 70, you know, and now he's like, if I could do this in this way, and I feel the same way, you know, if I could keep practicing radiology the way I'm practicing right now, like... I would love to be doing it when I was 70, right? Like, I don't want to retire early for all the talk of like financial independence, retire early. Like neither one of us is, is thinking about retiring early because we love what we do. It's funny how it works out that way. Um, I'm curious just to play devil's advocate here. What do you say to, and I think this is probably more of the older guard, but the physicians who say you shouldn't be bothered with side gigs. Like you can't do great clinical work if you're not dedicated to that hundred percent or you've, you, I'm sure you like I have heard people say, well, you can't be a great physician if you're a good researcher or you can't be a good researcher or business person or whatever, if, you know, and not be a good clinician at the same time. I mean, I think that there's some like 
truth to dedicate all your energy in one direction and be really, really good at it. Right. But what happens when you are no longer that good at it because it's become boring to you or because you're just disenchanted or because whatever, right? Like, and I think that that is the, the sort of luxury that the older generation of physicians has had and that they've really gotten to focus on the parts of medicine that they love the most. Right. And my dad is a cardiologist and, you know, I mean, always practiced exactly the way that he wanted to practice for 40 something years. Right. Um, got to spend all the time with his patients that he wanted. Right. Like I, I remember my friends in high school always had this like joke about how long it would take me to walk into the mall before one of my dad's patients would come running up to me and say like, Hey, how was your last debate tournament? Or how was your tennis match or whatever? Right. But I mean, he practiced in an era where, he had that kind of time to get to know his patients. Not only did he get to know his patients, they got to know him and they knew him well enough to identify his daughter in a busy crowded mall and run up to her and be like, I know about your life, right? Um, just a very different time in medicine. So I think when you talk to physicians who are sort of of that mentality, if you probe a little bit deeper, there are things in the current healthcare landscape that they are also not that happy about, but they see the time horizon at the end. And so they're kind of like, when this is too much for me, I will leave, right? And and so, yes, they are one-trick ponies for however many years that they do this, but then maybe now they're electing to retire at 65 and maybe they could have, you know, if they would have been able to work part-time and also be able to be on the golf course two days a week or whatever, maybe they would have stayed until they were 72 or 73 or whatever, right? Um, so I think the answer to that on my side of things is, we know that the, the healthcare landscape is becoming a lot more challenging. We know statistically that 60% of female, or sorry, 40% of female physicians will actually leave medicine or cut back clinically within their first six years of finishing practice or finishing residency and training, um, which is scary when you think about 50% of the female or the physician workforce being female, if not more, um, when you look at concurrently matriculated medical students. And so when you think about how are we going to create a sustainable physician workforce going forth, clearly there is something that needs to change about what we expect of our physicians, because right now when they see those two options, they're saying we're leaving, right? They're saying we're retiring early. They're saying we're cutting back. We're going to part time. And so the option for those physicians to be in clinical medicine for three decades or four decades um, practicing full-time is just not a realistic expectation with the demands that are currently being placed on physicians. And so the question is, do you want to practice the way that you were supposed to practice before and then burn out in less than a decade? Or do you want to be able to create a physician workforce that maybe says, hey, we're going to prioritize ourselves and our other interests a little bit more, but we're going to stick around and do this for a long period of time. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the because I heard this stat about 40% of female physicians either cutting back or leaving because I, I heard you say that on another podcast. I'm curious what I wanted to ask you, what do you think is kind of the, the etiology of that? And I imagine it's probably multiple factors, but what do you think of the etiology of that is? And what do you think maybe the, the way to kind of mitigate that is? <laughs> Sort of opening up Pandora's box here because I, I mean, I have entire like hour long lectures that I give on this topic, but I think that ultimately demographics in medicine are changing. The reality of female physicians is different than that of male physicians, right? Um, societally, they're expected, they just have a lot of other things that are on their plates that they are expected to do. And mental load is, is just higher amongst um, female physicians in terms of things at home. And then also demographically, female physicians 
honestly can leave um, in a way that male physicians honestly cannot in a lot of cases. This is obviously not applicable to everyone, but as a general demographic, 70 to 80% of female physicians are married to other high-income professionals. And so their ability to walk away is also greater than that of like the solo male breadwinner, for example. When you look at the fact that 70 to 80% of female physicians are married to other high-income professionals, that also means that they're their counterpart is working really hard and they are working really hard. And so the discussions in their households are different than the discussions that happened in households three decades ago, right? So everyone's saying, well, hey, like we also really need time for our children. And, you know, maybe both people are cutting back, right? Like, I mean, in our situation, like both my husband and I have said, okay, these are things you need to drop. These are things you need to drop, right? Like, so that we can have the life that we want for our family. So the discussions in these households are very different. And when finances aren't an issue, right, then you can say, well, I love what I do, but do I need to do it 60 hours a week? Maybe not, right? Like maybe I can do it 35 hours a week and still feel really happy that I'm using my education and doing something that I love, but I'm also being able to check off X, Y, and Z parts of my life that are really important to me. So I think the discussions that are happening in female physician households are very different. Um, and, you know, conversely, I think it can be really hard for male physicians, right? Who are also feeling that same desire to work differently. Or, you know, when I first started giving these talks, I did a lot of talks on like women in medicine and I'd get like these guys coming up to me afterwards being like, well, what makes you think I don't want to be at my kid's like basketball game at three 30 in the afternoon? Like I want that too. And I was like, Hey, you're right. Like, and I want that for my husband as well. Right. Um, so I think we're all looking to find ways to reclaim some of that humanity that we've given up for so many years during our training where it was like, of course we miss weddings. Of course we miss family reunions. Of course we miss dinners with our family. Like that's what it means to be a doctor. And now you're having a lot more people saying, well, maybe I don't want that to be what it means to be a doctor, right? Or maybe that's okay for that to be what it means to be a doctor three days of the week, but not seven days of the week, right? So I think as these, as more and more people have these discussions, I think you will see that it's not really as isolated to females as you think it is. I think that a lot of males, if given the opportunity, would also cut back clinically or leave medicine. But female physicians generally have a little bit more bandwidth demographically to be able to do so, so they do. Yeah, that's interesting. Thanks for providing that insight. I'm curious, switching gears a little bit as we kind of close things out here a little bit is, you know, with your advocacy work, I'm curious, what what have you kind of focused on with that? And then, you know, what are ways that physicians, because I feel like physicians historically aren't the greatest, at least on the national level or politically, the best advocates. And I'm curious, like what you've seen be effective in ways, because I mean, it's, it's frustrating, I think, you know, you know, obviously I'm a resident, so I don't control my pay, but, you know, with Medicare cuts for physician, you know, it seems like physician compensation is always something that's targeted. And I just, you know, no other profession gets their compensation cut, you know, every few years or, you know, certain procedures cut or things like that. It's, it just seems almost crazy. So, you know, what yeah. your kind of thoughts are on that? <laughs> I mean, I think compensation is a, it, it's something that you and I could probably talk about for hours, but I, the, the problem is, is right. We are low hanging fruit in terms of cutting costs, right? Because we're not organized. Um, there are a lot of people looking to put their hands in like this $8 trillion piece of the GDP, right? That makes up 20% of our nation's GDP. And so, and they've got lobbies and money and they are out there saying, well, you can't cut our piece. And, and the system is looking at things like, well, we can't afford to keep paying this much towards healthcare. And so 
it's an easy target to go after physician compensation because we're not organized and we don't have the lobbying dollars. And at the end of the day, there's less than a million practicing physicians in the United States. So no matter how, even if we get every doctor to come together and say, like, we want to be paid this, we don't have a lot of people, right? Um, but what I try to keep reminding people is that, like, we may not have the numbers or the money to compete with some of these entities, but at the end of the day, we have the skill set that nobody else has, right? And and I do think it becomes really important for physicians to come together and say, this is not sustainable. Like, look at how many of us are leaving medicine because you are making it not sustainable for us or not worth it for us for one reason or the other, right? Um, so you know, if you are a physician, the physician financial trajectory is very interesting, right? You start out with a decade of just being in the hole and like so much like further behind than all of your counterparts that you went to college with that you're just playing catch up. But once you get there, then you have a lot of options. And a lot of people are using those options to walk away from clinical medicine. So I think our society really needs to take a long, hard look at what that long-term effects of cutting physician compensation are, right? Um, it looks good on paper. It says, okay, but like in reality, if you cut physician salaries, you don't make a big dent in healthcare expenditures. Healthcare, like physician salaries make up less than 8%, about 8% of, of healthcare expenditure in this country. So if you were to cut our salary by 4% or 5%, it makes a huge difference to us. But in terms of like making a dent in healthcare expenditures, you're talking about less than a percent that you are actually decreasing healthcare expenditure by. So I think it's important to put that in perspective. Now, that being said, we have a really hard PR problem, right? I mean, we get paid really well for what we do. Um, and I would argue every day of the week that we deserve to get paid well for what we do. But by the same token, obviously, we make a good living and and that is hard. You know, we don't have the same sympathy if we were to like get out there and pick it, right? That would be, I mean, first of all, you'd put lives at stake. And second of all, it's really hard for the public to have sympathy for people that are earning a six-figure salary to get out there and say, we need to be paid more, right? So it's always been a really hard advocacy side of things. And, and the one thing that I always tell people is like, there's not a lot of doctors, but every single person in this country is a patient and every single person in this country wants good medical care and feels that it is a right owed to them. And so at some point it becomes the public's responsibility to advocate for physicians to get paid well and for other healthcare workers to get paid well, because that's the only way that the system is sustainable. Um, so, you know, it, I think when the pandemic happened, right, we got a lot of advocacy stuff done. And part of that was just kind of like, you need us and we need to be there. And this is what you need to do to make it okay for us to be there, right? You need to protect us. You need to give us PPE. You need to make sure that like, you know, when we voice concerns about patient care, that you are listening to them, like those, those things need to happen so that we can do our jobs. And if you want to tell us that you're not going to make it happen for us for reason X, Y, or Z, then we're going to tell you that patient care is going to suffer and it's not going to be our fault. It's going to be your fault because you decided that you would rather give a casino a bailout instead of giving a physician practice a bailout. Right. And when you say things in reasonable terms, I think people understand those things, right? Like the fact that we were going to get cut out of the stimulus package when casinos were being given bailouts, when we were being called healthcare heroes and being asked to like put bandanas on and go into patients' rooms with COVID, right? Like that was ridiculous. But it took, you know, 300,000 of us signing a document that like we spun up overnight on the communities to get in front of like 
you know, healthcare leader, or I mean, to get in front of congressional leaders and be like, this is crazy. Like, you cannot call us this. We're like living in trailers in our driveways right now so that we don't infect our families. And you're telling us we shouldn't get stimulus money, but like the casinos should get the stimulus money and our practices should go under. And if our practices go under, by the way, and there's no community like practices around, where do you think everyone ends up? They all end up in the ER, which is exactly where you don't want them right now. Right. And when you put it that way, people are kind of like, oh, yeah, you're right. We should probably make sure that the private practices don't go under. Right? But it takes the right messaging. And unfortunately, we're all so busy doing what we do that it's hard to find time to craft that right messaging. And I think that that's going to be something that we're just we have to take on and we have to find the time for because not just for ourselves, right? But for like actual good patient care in this country, it is not a lot of the changes that are coming through the system are very short-sighted and the people that ultimately suffer are the end users of that system, right? They are the doctors, they are the healthcare workers, and most importantly, they are the patients. Um, and so at some point, you know, I think we all need to realize that we need to stop sort of just like carrying this weight on our shoulders and thinking that we can somehow just continue to soldier on and realize like there's a breaking point. We've probably passed it already. And if we don't start talking about the things that we need to change, um, it, patient care is going to suffer and, and, you know, the, the entire system is going to be untenable, right? You keep bleeding doctors in the way that you've been bleeding doctors over the last few years. There is just no way to provide healthcare um, across the country. I mean, it's just no matter how many telemedicine or technology like solutions you come up with, there is no substitute for the fact that you need somebody there in every hospital seeing every patient. And, and if people don't realize that, and if we don't advocate for that and say like, this is a real problem and there really is a real shortage that's affecting patient care, you're going to start seeing a lot more consequences and a lot more scary things. And, um, eventually supply and demand forces and just like pressure from, you know, people demanding more from their healthcare systems is going to make that change. It's just a question of kind of how ugly it gets before it gets better. And hopefully, you know, I think all of us agree that we would prefer to not see it go to its worst case scenario, but, but you don't have enough doctors in this country and the pipeline to creating a doctor is not, you know, six months, it is 15 years, 10 years, 12 years. Right. Um, so Every time you like let a physician leave the system, you're thinking about another 12 years before you can fill that gap for them. Um, and so people need to realize like when you're pushing people out, you're creating a hole that you cannot patch for a really long time. Yeah, I think that's a great point you make. You know, I think one of my mentors here at Emory says, we're not going to train our way out of this in the sense that like there's not enough medical schools. You can't build enough medical schools and residency programs to, to solve this dilemma. And, you know, especially as in radiology, I mean, imaging volumes are just crazy right now. It's, you know, it's it's more and more. And it's, especially as these healthcare, both academic and private, you know, they keep acquiring new hospitals and things like that. And but yet then it's the same amount of doctors covering a whole new hospital system. You know, that's, that's an issue we're seeing all over the place. So it's, yeah. it's, it's something interesting. I don't know. And then I've heard of residency programs where, you know, there's issues and they have to close the program down and then they hire these crazy amount of nurse practitioners and PAs to cover, you know, what, you know, what 10 residents were doing or, you know, whatever, you know, they yes. hire. And so it's, it's just, surgery, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like exactly. Um, yeah, where they like st shut down a neurosurgery program. And then I think they had to hire like three nurse practitioners to cover the equivalent of each resident, um, which, you know, I mean, it, it, it's short-sighted decisions like that, where you just really have to take, 
you know, you have to be disciplined enough as a system. And, and unfortunately, that's not going to come from necessarily an individual decision maker because they're looking at their short term. It's going to have to come from much higher where we say, like, this is a national priority to make sure that we retain healthcare workers within the system. Um, and if that means we pay them a little bit more, right, then that means we pay them a little bit more. If it means we find ways for them to have a better work-life balance, if that means that we find ways to make the, you know, documentation less onerous, if that means that we decrease the need for prior authorizations, like all of those things are going to have to happen if we are going to keep healthcare workers within healthcare. Yeah, all excellent points. I guess my, my one of my last questions is, is, you know, what's your advice for kind of the trainees out there that are thinking about expanding their, their side gigs or kind of getting even just maybe dabbling some toes and just finding out more about it. What's, what's your thoughts on that? <laughs> I mean, I think, like I said, I, you're not in a rush to do it, right? Your first, and as residents and trainees, your first priority is obviously to become an excellent physician. And I think that that should never suffer in the pursuit of these things. But finding 15 minutes in your day to kind of be a little bit more intentional about what do I want the next 5, 10, 15 years of my career to look like and how do I make sure that I get there is probably 15 minutes well worth spending, right? And there's this tendency in medicine to feel like you have to do everything and do it perfectly right at the beginning, right? And, and having that analysis paralysis and just planning and everything has to be perfect. Well, that applies in medicine, but it doesn't apply to the rest of the world, right? Like if your podcast doesn't do well for one episode, the world is not going to end. Nothing is going to change in your life, right? Like it's okay. And so try, right? Just get out there and try, see what you like, pursue it. We were all pretty interesting people before we got to medical school and had like these skill sets and activities and things like that, that a lot of us dropped in the process of like medical education. If you miss those things, pick those things back up. And then, you know, if you spend enough time doing something, you will find a way to monetize it, right? You really like playing the guitar, like play your guitar, have fun with it. Like, and then, you know, one day when you're playing it around your friends, maybe you get a gig or maybe, you know, you decide, Hey, I want to start doing guitar lessons in my free time and teaching other people how to play the guitar, right? Like there, there are so many opportunities to make money off of your skill sets. And I think that that's something that all of America has discovered over the last few years, right? It's like, you can do a lot with Zoom and you can do a lot with like all these conventional barriers that kind of prevented us from thinking that we had time to do things are, are really coming down very quickly and how connected our world is right now. So finding ways that make sense within your schedule for you to devote the time to doing something, whether it's a little bit or whether it's a lot bit, right? You don't have to do everything at a hundred percent at first. So when you're in training, like there's a lot of gig type economy sort of stuff, right? You can tutor, you can do Uber, you can, you know, I mean, whatever it is that makes things fun, right? Um, just find those things and, and start somewhere and then let it build. Um, and if it doesn't work, find something else and let it build, right? There's no pressure to do it tomorrow. So I think, I think my biggest piece of advice is, is kind of find something that you think also understand that burnout is real. And you don't want to be doing something that's going to contribute to your burnout. And I see that mistake being made all the time where people are like, okay, I got to figure this out. I got to do this. I got to do that. And they're like working themselves raw. And the biggest detractor from your career longevity is going to be that burnout. So what you don't want to do is add something to your plate that further makes you unhappy or stressed or whatever. And then 
you like decide that, you know, I mean, for most physicians, what is going to be the major source of your income for the rest of your life is going to be your clinical income. So don't do anything to detract from that. I think that's great advice. My, my last question is I ask everybody this, what do you do to balance your life outside of all your, all the things you're doing? So what are your, like, what are your passions uh, and hobbies and things like that? That's a great question. Um, well, I lately have been, so I went away with a group of my like best friends from high school, college, medical school last year, and they were just kind of talking about all these things that they do that I have no time on my plate for, um, or I thought I had no time on my plate for. And they were just like, Misha, like, that's it. Like we're starting a book club. Like you loved reading for every stage of your life. And now you're like, all I read is like business and finance books. Like we're going to put a piece of fiction on your plate every month and we're going to do it. And you're going to, and so like lately I've been reading a lot, um, which is like, it sounds sort of trite, but that is something that I have not been able to do since I started residency and then had children and, you know, all my free time went towards the kids and my kids are finally getting to an age where, you know, they're, they're older. I mean, my older one is in middle school and my younger one is well on his way to middle school. And so, um, I have a lot more time to like, you know, be able to do those things. So, um, I've been reading a lot more. My husband and I, like when our kids are showering, we'll sometimes go out, take a walk. Um, you know, we try to do that every day where I try to get out and take a walk every day. Um, and sometimes I get to do that now at like, nine o'clock in the morning, which feels like I'm playing hooky, right? Like, I, I feel like that's something that I'm, I always used to be like, who are these people that get to walk around in their neighborhoods at like 11 o'clock in the morning? And now sometimes I get to be that person and, and that in and of itself is liberating. So yeah, for me, it's the little things that I've like dropped. I mean, I love travel. I, there are a lot of like big hobbies that I have, but like the daily restorative things that I do are all these things that I feel like for so long, it was like in my head, I was like, no, you don't have time to do this. And now I'm like, you do have time to read a book. You do have time to go outside and walk. Like, those are good things for me. <laughs> um, and they contribute to my, like, daily happiness. Um, you know, I, I love travel. But, like, you get back and you sort of crash because you're like, oh, now I don't have another vacation until whatever. So it's become a lot more important to me to say, like, at the end of every day, I can look back and be like, I did something cool that I wouldn't have been able to do however many years ago. And, like that's really important that I can go to bed every day and say that. So I try to make sure I do something that is a little thing, whether it's like, Hey, I spent some time cooking something that I wouldn't have, you know, had the time to cook or whatever it is. I, I spent time to call a friend and talk to them for 45 minutes. And before I like, wouldn't have had that time, something I try to put on my plate that I think that I don't have time for because it makes me feel better about my life when I'm able to put them on my plate. So yeah, definitely. I, I think that's a great point you hit on is, uh, you know, how you use, cause we all have free time, no matter how busy you are, there is time in the day when you're not working. So I think how you spend that time is, is really important. You should probably put some thought into it so you don't burn out again. <laughs> so, well, Nisha, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, I know you're really busy. Uh, lastly, what, where can people find you? Where can people find, uh, your communities and things like that? And we'll definitely put links for that in the episode description. So, I mean, I guess you called me on to talk about Physician Side Gigs, so I'll start with that website. It's www.physiciansidegigs.com. Um, I also have a personal website that's just my name, www.nishamethamd.com. Um, and those two things will basically catapult you to all the other things that I'm doing. Awesome. Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. I think this, I really enjoyed this conversation and I learned a lot and I'm sure the listeners will as well. 
All right. Well, thank you for having me. And I hope, you know, our paths cross again soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DaVinci Hour podcast presented by DaVinci Academy. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to catch the latest episodes. Please leave a comment or review and share it with a friend. Lastly, you can find all of our podcasts, video courses, and books on our website, dviacademy.com. Thank you for listening.